Greetings fellow captains, and welcome back to Rank Amateur. Today we are featuring the first dedicated U.S. aircraft carrier, USS Langley. But before we get into the star of today's episode, I'd like to mention that I now have merchandise that is available for purchase at my website on Spreadshirt. Simply go to the URL shop.spreadshirt.com slash rankamateurstore. You can pick up your own t-shirt, sweatshirt, long sleeve shirt, I even have face masks along with bags, several different varieties of phone cases, a pillow, different types of mugs, a mason jar, even a camper's mug, and a water bottle, as well as custom buttons, and you can even pick up a lunchbox or a lunch bag, and even a mouse pad. Anything that you purchase in the store helps support my podcast as I do get a large portion from the sale of any products, not to mention that these products look sweet, in my opinion. Wink, wink. And I think it is worth checking out if you are in the need for a t-shirt or a face mask because more stores are requiring that now, at least in the region in which I live. And that URL is shop.spreadshirt.com slash rank-amateur-store. But now, into the meat of today's episode. So today's episode, as I said before, is on USS Langley, which is the first U.S. aircraft carrier. However, it started its life in a far different role. It was actually the collier USS Jupiter, which is a Proteus-class collier, which is essentially like a freighter if you don't know what a collier is. And it's the sister ship to, obviously, Proteus, Cyclops, and Nereus, which all mysteriously disappeared without a trace. Cyclops is the most infamous of them all, with disappearing without a trace during World War I, uh, and the other two disappeared without a trace in World War II. So Jupiter is the only one to survive. Well, I guess it didn't necessarily survive. It did sink in World War II, but more on that later. But I think it's about time we get into the stats of USS Langley. So she was commissioned as an aircraft carrier on March 22, 1920. Her displacement was 11,050 tons standard and 14,700 tons deep load, so if it was fully loaded. She was 519 feet long at the waterline, that's 158.1 meters, and she was 542 feet 2 inches long overall, 165.2 meters. She had a beam of 65 feet 4 inches or 19.9 meters, and she had a draft of 16 feet 6 inches, which was standard, and that's 5 meters, or 22 feet deep load, 6.7 meters, which the draft is not that deep for a ship of her size, which is kind of interesting. She could carry around 33 aircraft, and the flight deck measured 159.3 by 19.8 meters, or 523 by 65 feet. She was armed with 427 millimeter, or 5-inch guns, which isn't that much. It was pretty much the original uh, armament that she had as a freighter. 
She was powered by turboelectric drive, which is actually the first ship in the U.S. Navy to have such drive, and that's when boilers boil water to create steam, which turns steam turbines, which turn electric generators, which turn electric motors, which actually turn the shafts. It's a very complicated form of propulsion, and it's kind of been shied away from until the introduction of nuclear aircraft carriers just because of its complexity and unreliability. The ship only produced 7,000 shaft horsepower, which is an incredibly small amount of horsepower, and that only made for a speed of 14.5 knots. She was incredibly slow, even at max speed. And she carried 2,000 tons of fuel, had a range that's pretty incredible of 12,250 nautical miles at 10 knots, which is far better than majority of other warships. And that's partially because she was a freighter and she was meant to make transatlantic journeys and possibly trans-Pacific journeys if the need arose. She had no armor, and she carried 425 men. The first interesting thing about this ship is her nickname, which was Covered Wagon. Now that's kind of interesting. Um, it doesn't it doesn't intimidate you or anything like that, and there's no real clear reason as to why she would be nicknamed that way. But we can probably assume or speculate that she's nicknamed this because she's not that much faster than a covered wagon, and she's not that more intimidating than a covered wagon. Although I'm not truly sure why they chose that nickname. So why did the Navy choose to make their first aircraft carrier a converted freighter? Well, the reasoning behind it is because they didn't really have any knowledge on how to build such a ship as it was their first ship, and the Collier Jupiter looked pretty favorable as far as the characteristics that it had, because I mean, it, while it was large and slow, it was kind of easy to manage, and the sh ship had been in service for almost a decade at the point in which they decided to convert it, so they knew the ship well. Her bridge was located very far forward, which meant that there was a lot of space for cargo, and the next thing actually has to relate to the cargo, and that's she had six huge cargo holds, like huge cargo holds that could hold large amounts of aviation fuel, and armament for the aircraft, so like you think like bombs and torpedoes and things like that, as well as ammunition. And her funnels were like an unusually tall and sided position, which meant that she could easily have her funnels rerouted to exhaust at the side of the flight deck, which meant that they didn't interfere with the aircraft traffic. And an interesting fact about her funnels is they could fold down the funnels could fold down so that they could let aircraft's wings not clip the side of the funnels. Uh, just an interesting feature that they built into the aircraft carrier. But um, the aircraft carrier itself is not very durable. It's not a very survivable design because if you've ever seen a picture of USS Langley, and that is the first one, CV-1, not the other ones that came after it because there were more USS Langleys, it seems like a very rickety design. It looks more like a stage set than an aircraft carrier. Because if you've ever seen, like, I don't know, American Ninja Warrior or something, where they have those kind of metal lattice structures that are holding up all the obstacles that the people have to kind of climb and 
crawl their way through. That's exactly what this looks like. Like they went to the film industry and it's like, we need some metal lattice structure for aircraft carrier. We're going to take it from you and put it on the aircraft carrier. Just slapped a flight deck on top of it, zipped it all down with some flex tape and called it good. And while flex tape is a very powerful and strong adhesive, and it even works underwater, it's not the greatest for building aircraft carriers, and one should put more thought into how they're going to lay out their aircraft carrier so it's a little bit more stable. And that's one thing about the Langley, is it was kind of top-heavy, because it got, has this huge flight deck on the top, and only a reasonable amount of weight in the keel, so it was supposed to be a little tippy. Some other conversions that were made was the use of her holds. Yes, and they're not going to hold cargo anymore in terms of like coal or mag magnesium or anything like that, but number one hold was dedicated to aviation fuel stowage, so they'd store all the fuel in there and hope that a bomb does not penetrate the flight deck and the hold cover and ignite all that fuel. And hold number four, interestingly enough, was actually modified to be the aircraft elevator, so they'd store all the aircraft in what's called a knocked-down configuration. So it means like they disassembled the aircraft slightly. So they like take the wings off and um, take uh, maybe like the engines and wheels and other extremities that poke out of the fuselage off, and kind of store the parts together in the other holds. So holds two, three, five, and six were all used for this, and they were served by two derrick cranes, which used were used to put the aircraft back together when they were necessary. While the ready-to-go aircraft, so the fully constructed, ready-to-fly aircraft, were stowed on the flight deck. And for the flight deck, they had two catapults that were mounted on the forward part of the flight deck, as in most aircraft carriers. USS Langley also carried an arrestor system, which is essentially a bunch of steel cables that work in conjunction with a hook on the back of the aircraft that are landing, and it keeps them from flying off the forward end of the aircraft carrier to be crushed under the weight of the Langley herself. And this was modified several times, so there is no real documentation on the exact arrangements of the arrestor system, but it was used to stop the aircraft. Now, USS Langley was obviously the first U.S. aircraft carrier and spent most of her life in training duties, which made her aircraft carrier life a little less interesting than her seaplane tender life. And yes, she was converted to a seaplane tender in the mid-1930s because she was obsolete as an aircraft carrier by then, having only a top speed of 14.5 knots because she was an ex-freighter. And she served until 1942 uh, as a seaplane tender. Now, I'm not going to go into the Langley's relatively short history as a freighter because it was, well, it's just kind of boring. And for entertainment's sake and time's sake, I am not going to go through that. We will start her as her life as an aircraft carrier. So she was converted into an aircraft carrier at Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Portsmouth, Virginia. And on April 11th, 1920, she was renamed Langley in honor of Samuel Pierpoint Langley, which, who was an American astronomer, physicist, aeronautics pioneer, and aircraft engineer. He was very important to the proliferation of aviation in general, not just naval aviation. 
Now, USS Langley was still under conversion from a freighter to an aircraft carrier when the Washington Naval Treaty came around. And in the Washington Naval Treaty, they limited the tonnage, the total tonnage that a Navy could have of aircraft carriers. And for the U.S., that tonnage limitation was 137,166 tons. But the U.S. Navy said, aha! What if we just use Langley as an experimental carrier? Does it still count in our treaty limitations? And the other allies in the treaty said, you know what? Since you're not going to use it in combat, and if we go to war with you, that's not going to really affect us. You know, we're going to exempt it from the treaty. And that way you'll have more room to build other aircraft carriers rather than limiting yourself, even though this is just an experimental aircraft carrier. So... There it was. USS Langley was only to be used for experimental purposes. And experimental purposes, she was used for. There's a ton of firsts that were on USS Langley, such as the first aircraft to fly off of a dedicated aircraft carrier. The first U.S. aircraft to actually land on a ship safely. And she was also the first aircraft carrier to completely lose her flock of pigeons. And no, that's not slang for naval aviation. USS Langley did accidentally lose her flock of messenger pigeons. And yes, so an unusual feature that USS Langley had was a pigeon coop, I guess. It was a pigeon coop between the stern 5-inch gun mountings. And um, these gun mountings were two forward and two rear, each mounted on one side of the ship. So... There was two on the port side and two on the starboard side. Now, in between those two stern ones was that pigeon coop, and it was a relatively large pigeon coop, and it carried several, or actually hundreds of pigeons. And these pigeons were used as messenger pigeons that were carried aboard seaplanes to, you know, uh, send and carry notes to, between two forces. And they were used in throughout World War One very commonly. And they would often be let out in small groups to exercise. And when small groups went out, they often came back to their flock because they knew there was protection there. But one time, the whole flock was let out at Naval Station Norfolk, and they never came back. No, they, they actually never came back. They're, they roosted in the cranes of Naval Station Norfolk's yard, and they stayed there. Attempts to recapture them failed, so they just left them there. So it is possible, if you go to Norfolk, that the pigeons that are around the city may actually be descendants of the pigeons that were on USS Langley. So they were descendants of messenger pigeons. That would be kind of interesting. An interesting fact that I did not know before I started researching this ship. And the ex-pigeon coop, I guess, was converted into the officers' quarters in the stern of the ship, which can still be seen in World of Warships today. It's kind of the box that's at the stern of the ship with some windows in it, and I believe it's got a searchlight stern from it. So by 1922, she had been fully completed, and in 1923, she had begun flight operations, and she was testing in the Caribbean Sea. And after she was done testing, she steamed to Washington, D.C., where she gave a demonstration of her flying or her pilot's flying abilities for a short while. And then she went on a cruise of the eastern United States, specifically the Northeast, and she would arrive in various cities and 
anchor close enough to the shore that civilians could come and watch, and she would publish a uh, takeoff and landing schedule so that people could come down to the harbor at a specific time and see a few aircraft take off or a few aircraft land. And it was widely liked by the people who, or the civilians who got to watch. And they also did some formation flying over cities and even some air shows, but people were less interested in that and more just seeing a plane take off from the aircraft carrier or land on the aircraft carrier. But an interesting thing that happens when your ship is anchored and you're trying to take off from it is that there's less wind, which means you have to attain more speed before you can, or you're, you're able to become airborne. And since when a ship is moving, it's generating its own wind. And when an aircraft carrier wants to have its aircraft turn or take off, it turns into the wind so that it's easier for the aircraft to take off because they're, you know, well, it's easier to gain lift when the wind's coming at you. And that wasn't really true when you're anchored. So the pilots were relatively confident that their Vought VE-7s could reach flying speed during the 52-foot drop from the main flight deck to the water. And if you didn't get fast enough, it was in the drink for you. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting, because that's kind of a hit-and-miss sort of thing. But I guess interesting. So there's a very large chance if you were a civilian watching, you would be able to see an aircraft crash into the water. Luckily, it wasn't a high-speed collision with the water, and pilots could more often than not escape the canopies of the aircraft before the aircraft sank to the bottom. But I guess that's just a risk you have to flying off of an aircraft carrier. And for the next 12 or so years, USS Langley just did training exercises, and it was relatively boring. Uh, most of the training exercises that she did are not published in any history books or anything, so I don't exactly know what exercises she participated in, but they were numerous and enough to take up 12 years of time. So nothing really interesting happened at that time, except, except for in 1929, a film called The Flying Fleet featured U.S. Langley several times in it, which I guess is kind of interesting, but uh, it's 12 years of training, so only a minor break in the boredom. On to USS Langley's life as a seaplane tender. So on October 25th, 1936, she laid up in Merritt Island Naval Yard in California for an overhaul and a conversion to a seaplane tender. And that marked the ending of her career as a aircraft carrier because by that time she was well and truly obsolete. But the pilots she trained proved instrumental in training other pilots in the U.S. Navy, which kind of started a domino effect, as you can see there. And most of the pilots that she trained actually served on USS Lexington and USS Saratoga, which were the next two carriers in the U.S. Navy. And still, believe it or not, they were not originally intended to be built as aircraft carriers. They were first intended to be Lexington-class battlecruisers, but the Washington Naval Treaty said that they had to be converted to aircraft carriers, which I think is also very interesting once more. And the conversion was complete on February 26th, 1937, and the new hall number for USS Langley was AV-3, and it was assigned on April 11th. She was assigned to Aircraft Scouting Force and commenced her seaplane tending operations out of several bases, first one Seattle, then Sitka, Alaska, then Pearl Harbor, and then San Diego, California. 
and she was on a brief deployment in the Atlantic Fleet from February 1st to July 10th, 1939, and then she steamed back to the Asiatic Fleet in Melania on September 24th. Now, her World War II service was kind of, well, unfortunately, short. And when the U.S. entered World War II on December 8th, USS Langley was anchored off of Cavit in the Philippines. And on December 8th, when the U.S. declared war, she departed for the Dutch East Indies. And the Japanese continued to advance into the Dutch East Indies, so Langley proceeded to Australia, which was, at the time, very safe, although Japanese bombing was kind of getting more and more routine. And she arrived in Darwin on January 1st, 1942. And yeah, that's a long time after December 8th, and that's because Langley is really, really slow. She still maintains that 14.5 knot top speed, which means that she's going nowhere fast. And she became part of the American, British, Dutch, Australian Command, or ABDICOM, naval forces. And until January 11th, USS Langley assisted the Royal Australian Air Force in running anti-submarine patrols out of the Australian city of Darwin. Which, that isn't that long to be assisting the Aussies, but I guess it's something. USS Langley then departed for Fremantle to pick up a cargo which consisted of 32 P-40 fighters of the Far East Air Force 13th Pursuit Squadron. And she also picked up U.S. Army Air Force pilots and their ground crews. At Fremantle, Langley and the cargo ship named Sea Witch, which was loaded with an additional 27 unassembled and crated P-40s, so essentially knockdown P-40s in that knockdown configuration I spoke about earlier. They joined the convoy MS.5, which had just arrived from Melbourne, and it was bound for a city called Colombo Celion, which is modern-day Sri Lanka, and Colombo is the largest city in Sri Lanka, and they were loaded with troops and supplies that would eventually reach um, India and Burma to assist the fight against the Japanese invasion. The convoy consisted of U.S. Army Transport Willard A. Holbrook and the Australian Troop Transports Duntroon and Katoomba, and they were escorted by the light cruiser USS Phoenix, which was a Brooklyn-class light cruiser. MS.5 departed Fremantle on February 22, 1922, and en route to Colombo, USS Langley and Sea Witch were redirected by ABDICOM, so that's that American-British-Dutch-Australian command again, and they were instructed to leave the convoy and instead proceed to individually deliver their supplies to Tijlap, Java, so a um, city in Java, which is an island in modern-day Indonesia. While they were initially unescorted, they met up with the destroyers USS Whipple and USS Edstall in the morning hours of February 27th, 1942. And both of these destroyers are World War I destroyers, specifically Clemson class, and you might recognize that as being the Tier Four American destroyer in World of Warships, but they were relatively outdated due to their low amount of armament and low top speed, but they were still used by the U.S. Navy all throughout World War II. 
And these destroyers had been sent out from their destination, believe it or not, to rendezvous with USS Langley and escort her the remaining way back. But the Japanese had other plans for USS Langley, as they had been spotted by a Japanese reconnaissance plane. And at 11.40 a.m., all four ships of the convoy were attacked by 16 Mitsubishi G4M Betty bombers of the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service Tako Kotui. Kotui, I don't even know. Okay. They were attacked by Betty bombers of the Imperial Japanese Navy's Air Service. There you go. We got it. And they were led by Lieutenant Jairo Adichi flying out of Denpasar Airfield on Bali, so assuming somewhere in the Dutch East Indies. And they were escorted by 15 A6M Horizon fighters. And they had a very clever strategy of sinking the former U.S. aircraft carrier-turned-seaplane tender. They didn't drop all their bombs at once. They dropped their bombs in sort of waves. Three waves, to be particular, and exact. These bombers were dropping their bombs from medium altitude, so they were pretty high up there. And in the first and second waves, USS Langley was to alter helm, which essentially means turn in either direction or change course to avoid the bombs and make them either splash far to port or far to starboard so that she did not take any hits. But the bombers were quick to learn, or actually the pilots were quick to learn, and they soon worked together and bracketed USS Langley in bombs so that she couldn't turn in any direction without getting hit by a bomb. And she took five hits, which consisted of 550-pound and 60-pound bombs. So for you Europeans and people in other places of the world, that is 250-kilogram and 60-kilogram bombs. And there were three near misses as well along with 16 crewmen who died as a result of the impact. The flight deck essentially just burst into flames. It was covered in fire. The steering was knocked out, and the ship developed a 10-degree list to port. Langley was soon dead in the water as she had been flooding in the engine room and the engine stalled. And at 1.32 p.m., or 13.32 if you were in military time, the order to abandon ship was given. And destroyers USS Whipple and Edstall rescued the remaining survivors on the ship. And at 1.58 p.m. or 13.58, the escorting destroyers sailed away from the ship and they fired nine four-inch shells and two torpedoes to Langley's hull. And this prevented her from falling into enemy hands, but it also means sinking her. So that was the end of USS Langley in her service in World War II and just her in general. And Langley's crew, this was not, by all means, not the end of their struggle. Because they were transferred to the oiler, so tanker, USS Pecos, and the Pecos was sunk by a Japanese carrier aircraft again while en route to Australia to bring the crewmen home. And 31 of the 33 pilots assigned to the 13th Pursuit Squadron were being transported by Langley, remained on the Edstall, and they were to be brought to Tiljalap. 
but they were lost when she was sunk on the same day by Japanese warships while responding to the distress calls of Pecos. So the Pecos sent out distress calls, obviously, and the Japanese warships were like, nope, and just slapped USS Edstall and sent her straight to the bottom of the Indian Ocean without even thinking twice. So um, that was pretty... It, it was a pretty intense day for those crewmen, as they most of them were killed. Which is kind of sad, because you survive one ship sinking, only to be killed a matter of hours later in another ship sinking by what seems to be the same aircraft or the same force that launched those aircraft. So that was kind of a double whammy there. But I think, I think it's time that we got into the World of Warships side of things as far as USS Langley is concerned. So we will take a quick break, and even though lemons pucker their faces when we say it, here is a message from this episode's sponsor. Welcome back to the second half of the Rank Amateur podcast about USS Langley. And this half is about the World of Warships doppelganger of USS Langley. And I really hope you weren't hoping for a good aircraft carrier, because this one sucks. <laughs> it is, in my opinion, the worst ship in the game. It is the hardest ship to play, it's the hardest ship to do damage in, and it's just, it's fairly disappointing. There is, it's so slow. It's got a top speed of 15 knots. Well, actually, you know what? Let's just go over the horrifically bad stats here. And just for the jokes, I'm going to read it all in top configuration. So, she has 33,700 hit points. And it's okay. It, it's okay, I guess. Her secondary armament consists of those four 127mm rifles, each disposed in one per turret. And there's four turrets, obviously. They have a firing range of a pitiful 3.5 kilometers, which I guess it's not whatever. It's you're never really going to use them anyways. They could have a 10 kilometer range and you wouldn't use them. They have a seven second reload, which is terrible for a secondary battery. And their maximum HE shell damage is an okay uh, 1800 damage. They have an incredibly high 960 meters a second shell velocity, which is really, really good. And they have an okay, or actually, yeah, okay, chance of setting on fire, which is 6%. And so they're okay. The dispersion on them's pretty bad, though. That just adds to the pointlessness of the secondary guns. The A defense is is actually pretty good. It's not bad. It could really hold its own against same tier carriers. Now, it can not do anything against tier 6 carriers if you're in a fail division, or if you somehow get up tiered there. I've been up tiered in a tier 6 battle once in this carrier for some strange reason. But there's 16 12.7 meter Brownings, and they have an average damage per second of 57.6. Firing range of 1.2 kilometers, so that's your short range. Your long range, it consists of 76.2 millimeters. Mark 22 Mod 2 rifles, and those are each disposed in 4x1, so you only have four of them in each in their own turret. They have an average damage per second of 11.2, and they have a firing range of 3.51 kilometers, which is longer than your secondary gun battery range, which I find quite amusing. But yeah, so it'll it'll hold its own against same tier carriers. 
it's kind of, but it's it's nothing nothing to write home about, I should say. Maneuverability is horrendous. It is horrendously bad. Its maximum speed is 15 knots, which is terrible. It is the slowest ship in the game. It has a turning circle radius of 730 meters, which is, isn't is great. It's, it's not horrific as the speed, but it's still pretty bad. Rudder shift time of 9.2 seconds, which, again, is pretty bad. But her concealment is very good. It's only got a surface detectability range of 10.08 kilometers, so you're really not going to get seen by anything other than a destroyer. And has an air detectability range of 5.93 kilometers. So... USS Langley has the unfortunate distinction, to quote the World of Warships Wikipedia page, of being the slowest aircraft carrier in the game. If discovered, it can't get away from anything, not even battleships. And that is very, very true. If you discover, you are very much in the crap. You are, yeah, you're done. You are, your will has been signed and your coffin has been firmly nailed. (laughs) <laughs> there is no getting away from anything, and they will just kind of farm you for damage until you die. And the only thing you can hope to do is maybe take some damage off of them. You're lucky in this ship. You're lucky if you get 30,000 damage. I have occasionally had the pleasure of getting 60,000 damage in this ship, and that's only because the enemy team potatoed so hard that I was able to pick off their ships one by one. I managed to pick off two of them, in fact, and we won by a landslide victory, so it really wasn't anything spectacular. But in a normal game, in a normal game, I would probably get like twenty thousand damage in this ship. It's really not that great, and for a beginning player, honestly, if you're beginning in aircraft carriers, I might want to go with that um, Hosho, the Tier Four Japanese, because it just does so much more damage in every way. But it's our squadrons have more health in the U.S. lineup, and that really can help out. The bombs are horrendously inaccurate. They're, it's hopelessly inaccurate, in fact. You're not going to hit anything other than a battleship. I struggle to hit cruisers, and hitting a destroyer with them? Forget it. You're not even going to hit anything. The rockets, though, the rockets are pretty good. You just pretty much, throughout the game, you just spam the rocket, uh, attacks and take out destroyers, ruin their day, because the rockets actually do a decent amount of damage. I really like playing the rocket planes. They're fast and maneuverable, have a fast aiming time, and are actually really accurate, or at least most of the time. It's really frustrating when they're not accurate and you get one rocket hit and do a total of 500 damage to the ship. But they are the ultimate fun police for destroyers, especially in experienced tier 4 destroyers. And another plus of this ship is it has an incredibly weird hitbox. It is actually really hard to hit from a distance, especially if you're if you don't have plunging fire, which would be closer, you can shoot straight through the I guess the gaps between the flight deck and the hull. And this would happen at long range as well because your shots aren't as accurate at long range. But that's pretty much your only hope against dodging enemy shells because you're not going to maneuver around them because your top speed's only 15 knots. And your armor is so bad that 5-inch destroyer-caliber high-explosive shells can citadel you. 
Yes, I was in my Shenyang once I was when I was grinding up the Pan-Asian Destroyer lineup, and I was firing high explosive at a Langley, thinking, oh, I'm going to set him on fire and uh, get the damage control and see if I can get two fires. Well, no, I actually managed to Citadel him, and I kept doing that, kept getting those high explosive Citadels, and wrecked him from the map. And he was angled, too, which was the funny part. But... The same thing goes for your bombs. Your bombs, your high explosive bombs, have enough penetration to citadel most things at your tier, besides battleships, obviously. But cruisers, especially British cruisers, better watch out. If they're not maneuvering hard, they are very easily citadel, assuming the bombs hit. That's kind of just what you, the game you play when you try to launch these bombs. Do they hit or not? So, down to the cons for this incredibly slow aircraft carrier. And that's the first con that I have, is how slow and maneuverable it has. If you're spotted, you are done. You may as well, oh, I guess I shouldn't suggest this, but you may as well quit to the port screen because you're done. Your game is essentially over. And so, unless you're with a bunch of teammates and you're able to turn around and get off detection, you're done. And it's got no armor, as I mentioned, so it can be Citadel by Ichi. The bombers, extremely poor accuracy, and the torpedo bombers, torpedoes are really slow. I knew they were slow, but until researching it and looking up the stats, I didn't know that their top speed was only 35 knots. To put that in perspective, most destroyers can outrun them. That's pretty sad. Upgrades. Upgrades for this ship, pretty basic, just air groups modification 1. In slot 1, aircraft engines modification 2, in slot 2, and it really doesn't matter. The ship sucks so bad, it's kind of like polishing a turd. But captain skills, just pretty much take all the aircraft skills you can get, and then concealment expert, and you're good to go with the ship. I have been bashing the ship most of this time, and it's, it's bad, but it's a good start, because... It's got a lot of aircraft, and if you lose a lot, because you will, you're, those torpedo bombers are incredibly hard to use, but they have a high chance of flooding. Those torpedo bombers, they're slow, they're big targets for anti-aircraft and things, so you're going to lose a lot of them, but there's also a lot of them that the ship has, and that helps with learning, like, oh, how do I avoid flak, because you don't have much health, and you don't have... Um, that much damage, so you need to get as many aircraft through as possible to get those strikes off. And that helps train you to avoid that flak, and it helps you in later carriers when that's maybe not as important, but it will be a very nice skill to get more aircraft through. But that concludes my World of Warships review of USS Langley. Yes, I have very harsh opinions on this, and that's just because I've had games that have been extremely frustrating where even as an aircraft carrier, some other aircraft carriers come in the first two minutes and end up killing me with torpedoes because I can't avoid them because the ship's so slow. But it's a good training aircraft carrier as it was in real life, and I just recommend grinding through it to the Ranger as soon as possible, as quickly as possible. I hope you like this episode of Rank Amateur, and definitely go check out my brand spanking new all singing, all dancing merchandise site for some cool t-shirts, coffee mugs, and water bottles, along with other things, even a mouse pad. 
And I recommend that you go to my Anchor page at anchor.fm slash rank dash amateur. Leave me a comment or actually a voice comment because that's what Anchor does for whatever reason. I can even feature you in my next episode if you were to make a voice comment and I were to choose that comment to be featured. But you can also send me an email at my brand new email address that I just created. And that email address is rankamateurpodcasts, all one word, no spaces, no capitals or anything, at gmail.com. And I will catch you next time, captains.